This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 503 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Byron Branch. Now, Byron was not only an elite fencer, but also a new law enforcement officer when he was struck by a car during a winter storm and ultimately lost his leg. His incredible story of not only returning to full duty, but to also enter the world of wheelchair fencing is nothing short of inspirational. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of now over 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Byron Branch. Enjoy. Byron, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Jim for connecting us. And secondly, thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Sure. No problem, man. So how, firstly, just as an icebreaker, how did you meet Jim? What's your history? Um, I get <laughs> That's funny you asked that because I think we met through, I think he's like a firefighter. I'm pretty sure he's a firefighter. Yes. Um, so it would have been being out on calls and stuff like that, just especially like being from the area I'm from and, you know, going on calls together with fire and EMTs and everything like that, we're always going to run into each other. And then some way or another, he had a podcast and was interested in talking to me on it. Um, and so that's kind of like how we got connected. I'm pretty sure I've actually even been on calls with him before, but it seems always so hectic, you know, and I've got my job, they've got their job. And then, so he kind of, uh, got a hold of me through other people and asked me if I was willing to come on and talk to him. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I heard your conversation. It was a great chat and it gave me some insight to try and kind of pull some some other things out. Um, so firstly, for everyone listening, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Like where am I sitting right now? Yes, geographically. I'm at, I'm at my house in uh, Ohio, just outside of uh, Dayton. Beautiful. Yeah. My wife's from North Canton, so not too far from you. Oh, yeah. She's about three hours north. Yeah. All right. Well, then... Uh, so I like to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and tell me what your parents did, how many siblings. Okay. So I was born at Good Samaritan Hospital in Dayton, Ohio, which actually doesn't exist anymore. They closed it down like a year or two ago. Um, my parents, my father started at the VA, which is just a, a veterans affairs, like for military vets and stuff like that. As a security guard, my mother, um, I believe she also worked there for a time. Um, and they met, got married and whatnot. Now, I guess I should backtrack a little bit. My, the man who I call my father is technically on paper, my stepfather, but for me, he's, he's always been my dad, always will be my dad. No question about it. Uh, no, I've known him my entire life. So he is my father. Um, but, uh, so they met, then he got, um, a job. Hold on. 
Okay. Yeah. So he got a job. Uh, at the, sorry, Mike. Mike. Like I said, I got a brand new cat, and the other cat's starting to fight. I can hear. Cat. I can hear cat. <laughs> cat warfare yeah. going on in the background. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying trying to avoid that. I throw something at him. Stop that. Yes. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, they ended up going over to the sheriff's office, and my dad became a, a sheriff for the county and uh, worked his way up through there. My mom worked over there um, also. And uh, she still works there, but my dad retired as a captain. And um, actually, he works back at the VA where he originally started um, before uh, they had actually gotten together. So Beautiful. That's just a little background on them. All right. Now, what about sports? When you were at a school age, what were you playing back then? School age? Well, what school age? Because I went through, like, I played various ones. I did basketball, like, for a year when I was in third grade, I think. Um and I was just wasn't into it. I'm not very tall. I think I'm like five foot seven. So <laughs> basketball was not really in my future. Um, then I did uh, football for a year. And again, with football, like the, I enjoyed the training aspect of it in the spring and summer. But playing a sport outdoors in the fall and winter, not really my thing. I was just freezing the whole time. So I only did that for a year. Um, but I started baseball when I was nine. And I played that till I was about 21. I really liked baseball. Baseball was in that perfect time between uh, late March and ending in September. So it was always nice weather. And being here in Southern Ohio, the weather's always fantastic around that time of the year anyway. Except for hit or miss, we have a few days where winter will linger a little bit in March and it'll be really cold. Um, so I played baseball for a really long time. And then in high school, um, I got into uh, fencing and gymnastics. So I was a gymnastics coach for two years. And then I did fencing from uh, 2000 to 2001. And then I took a break and came back in 2007. Because uh, I was unaware that the sport itself was uh, a full-time, like, all-year-round outside of school sport. I didn't know that. Once I found that out, I got back into it in 2007, and I continue to fence still to this day. So Beautiful. Well, obviously, you know, fencing is an integral part of your journey. Before we get to, to kind of, you know, after high school, you ended up obviously coming to law enforcement. And the injury that happened to you, just from the outside looking in, I mean, you know, you went through hell, but... It seemed like your attitude, your mindset was was very different than maybe you know a lot of people would have. It seemed very positive. It seemed very determined to get back on the job. When you look back at your childhood, were there elements of your upbringing that gave you that that kind of not only the the determination to compete at a high level in sports and and be you know athletic, but also the mindset to be able to get through a trauma that, that could have ended your career, could have been you know it. Um. I guess for me, just always growing up, I had always had like a forward looking kind of mentality. Um, could I never really was one to waste time dwelling on um, things I couldn't control, things out of my control. It was always just like, okay, what can I do to advance and continue to move forward and continue to get better, right? So even in, in sports, baseball, you know, for example, I was always trying to improve, get faster, pitch faster, learn more pitches, um, get on base more often, you know? So I'd really focus on just key elements of that until I was as good as I could be at that, and then I move on to the next thing. But it was always about progress. You know, I, if, I, if I got stuck in a rut, okay, I'd try and figure my way out of it. Because I was uh, also, even when I was younger, in fourth grade, you know, I was an avid chess player. Chess is all about, you know, figuring out advantages and disadvantages that your opponents have. Um, so things like that had always intrigued me. When it came to just my own mental state and, you know, my, my general mental fortitude, I came from a very supportive um background you know so anything i wanted to do you know my parents were like well you know go for it go do it so um i would always just try and put my best foot forward <laughs> no pun intended and um just continue, continue to always move forward that was always always a big thing for me 
you know, so I didn't want to get too hung up on it. And even when I woke up, you know, in the hospital, not to jump too far ahead, you know, my, my initial concern outside of my children and my wife was like, okay, how am I going to move forward from this? Now, another thing I heard you say to Jim, I think it was one of his closing questions, was that you never had alcohol, done drugs, smoked, any of that. So again, with so many of us, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, English and we, we have wine with Sunday dinner, you know, so that was kind of my introduction as a younger child. Um, and to this day, you know, I drink. Um, what was it about your upbringing and then especially as a teenager when so many people probably around you were that you were able to stay away from any of those influences? I mean, honestly, it really wasn't that hard. A lot of people think they attribute or they would guess and attribute it to the fact that my father was a cop and had nothing to do with that. It just it, I never found it particularly that interesting because um, it wasn't going to enhance my ability to perform in sports. Um, and <laughs> uh, as you could guess, yeah, a lot of people did do it. Some of my best friends, people I'm still friends with today, like that's what they were big into, smoking pot, drinking, doing all that. So I got to observe their behavior, you know, under the influence of drugs and alcohol all the time. And I was just like, you know what, none of, none of that stuff is for me. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, uh, I ran into this guy, Eric, uh, who I still kind of know today. And he kind of introduced me to this um, this lifestyle called straight edge, you know, and they were all about not doing not doing drugs, not drinking, none of that. Now, I never attributed myself to the the hardcore aspect of it, any of the violent aspect of it. I always looked at it more like being vegetarian, you know, vegetarians, just there's just certain foods that they just don't eat. Right. So me as being straight edge, there was just I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs or anything like that. You know, so that's how I always viewed it. I, I'd never been, I don't think, I'd never been in my first fight until I became a police officer. <laughs> so violence was never really a big thing um, in my life because, again, I was always consumed with sports and, and being active. So I never really had any time to start any drama with any, anybody outside of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing as well. And I was talking about this to um, uh, FDNY firefighter. Um, and again, you know, when there's mentorship, when there's focus, whether it's, a police or fire explorer program, whether it's a sports program, you know, whether it's a chess club, it's up to us to to funnel our kids into whatever they have a passion for, so that that same desire and energy doesn't go towards fighting, you know, gangs, drugs, alcohol. Um, so when you look back, was was that a thing? That energy being so honed in on the sports that you were playing and being encouraged by your parents that that's what took the place of, you know, maybe a less uh, healthy coping mechanism or, or less healthy outlet, should we say? Yeah, I would definitely say less healthy outlet as opposed to coping mechanism because I never really had any dire stress in my life that I needed to cope by other means. It's just if you looked at how not really strict my regiment was, but just how busy I was during that time. I played for three baseball teams at one time in one year. So it was I would play 21 game or 21 innings in a day sometimes. I would just go from one team to another team to another team. Um, so I was so busy and involved with that. I didn't have much time for anything else. It was school and then training for baseball. So I'd have baseball practice right after it and the, or I'd have games. And the games are usually on the weekends. Um, so my weekends were full with a lot of that stuff. Um, and when I wasn't doing either one of those, okay, then I was working on chess or I was drawing or I was doing something else because I was always about hobbies. You know, I was playing guitar. I started playing when I was 14. I'm 37 now and I still play. I used to practice like three hours a day back then. So I was always busy with something. I like to, what do they used to call me, like a renaissance style man. I just do a bunch of different things, you know, to keep myself preoccupied. Um, so I never really had much time to to get into uh, a lot of the shenanigans some of my other friends might have gotten into. 
Now, when you were at the high school age, what were your career aspirations? Was it law enforcement or did you have something else in mind at that point? Um, I was kind of all over the place. Initially, when uh, I was in high school, I thought I wanted to go to college for biology. I wanted to be a virologist. I wanted to work for the CDC and study Ebola. Like that was you, that was the really you'd be rich thing. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, that, that's what I was always fascinated by, and I couldn't even tell you exactly why I was fascinated by it. I, just, I remember hearing about it one day on like National Geographic, and I was like, that virus is absolutely insane. Um, I'd always had a, a I was always really, really interested in, in viruses, bacteria, any type of biology. I thought for a while I wanted to be a herpetologist because I had a lot of different reptiles and amphibians growing up as a kid. I had a couple of newts, some frogs, several snakes. I had a Burmese python that was 10 feet long. I had a red-tailed Colombian boa and a 400-gallon tank in my bedroom growing up as a kid. So I thought I wanted to do that for a while. And then Steve Irwin died, and I was like, ah, I'm not going to do that anymore. So <laughs> I, uh, I ended up starting college in in biology and then i switched to international politics like my sophomore year i think okay so then i think the uh, fencing came before law enforcement didn't it so so talk to me about your introduction to fencing first and then we'll switch over to the career side again sure um so fencing the, the high school that i went to um had a lot of electives okay um not the standard stuff that a lot of schools have. Some schools, you know, you have gym. Gym is very generic. You put on some basketball shorts. You go play basketball. It's almost like recess for adolescent and, and teenage kids. Well, at, at the high school that I went to, what we had, we had electives like outdoor education, which was a phenomenal class. You go into the classroom. When you leave the classroom, you go out into the woods. You're making, you learn how to make fires, eat bugs, survive in the wilderness. Really cool class. We had archery. Um, we had, uh, I think you played tennis. We had a golf team. Uh, so we had standard baseball, uh, football, basketball stuff. But then we also had uh, gymnastics as an elective, which in my senior year I had five um, I had five study halls available. So what, I just took gymnastics uh, for five straight periods in a row because uh, I had it as an elective. And I was a gymnastics uh, assistant coach at that time anyway. Um, but what I also found as an elective was fencing. And I found that in 2000, and I thought it was really fascinating. And how it was explained to me, I was explained to everybody. It's like, hey, think of this as like physical chess. And like I said, when I was in fourth grade, I was in chess club. So I was like, okay, well, let's see if I can figure out how to be better than this person that's in front of me. How can I take apart their game that they're approaching me with, and how can I use that to my advantage? So I got really into fencing. Um, and then in 2001, I was third. I finished third in state in 2001. And then, like I said, I just quit after that because I didn't know I could do it after I graduated from high school. I didn't find that out for, uh, like I said, I graduated once. I graduated in 2003. So yeah, it was 2003 then. So I took a four-year break or three-and-a-half-year break, and then I came back in 07 and started doing it again. And I just trained and trained and trained. I was trained 25 hours a week at two to three different clubs, one here in Dayton, sometimes in Columbus, sometimes in Cincinnati, um, until I got what was my, uh, my A status because the rankings are U for unrated, E, D, C, B, A. And then A being like the, the highest that you can be. Now, I've heard Tim Ferriss talking about his uh, success with Kung Fu, basically thinking the way that you did. Like, you know, almost like gaming the system and realizing how he could win with the skill set that he had against the rules and against the opponent. When you took that chess mindset and you brought it to fencing, um, it kind of what was the, the process of breaking down the opposing fencer? Um, for me, my general rule of thumb is never work harder than the person in front of you. So if you can, 
let's say I'm faster than you, right? I'm able to move back and forth on the strip quicker than you. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to press you all the way back to the end of the strip and then force you to press me as slowly as I can back to the other side. And then I'm just going to gas you down. And once I can start seeing your chest heave or I can hear you breathing, then I will start attacking you quickly because I know your response time is going to be slow because you're going to be, you're going to have a hard time gaining your your breath back and being able to focus on what it is you need to do. Now, the problem you're going to run into is when you get into your top tier level fencers, your Olympians, they don't ever get tired. They never gas out. <laughs> it's like uh, when you go against somebody doing jujitsu who is like an expert at it and, and you're winded, you know, trying to submit this guy and he's like barely breathing, not really sweating and just collapses you as an individual, you know, it's, it's when you can attack somebody with that level of ferocity, right? Um, it's very easy to, to dominate uh, an individual on the strip with kind of like that same mentality so see that's interesting because i found that in jiu-jitsu as well and even in like striking sports i could wear them out by just hitting their fists and feet with my head until yeah <laughs> <laughs> until they get well, tired actually, it's funny you mention that because we do a little boxing in the academy right for police stuff and fencing footwork translated really well to boxing it makes it's very easy to get in and out of the pocket um now i don't didn't know a whole lot about striking somebody, but I was very, I could move around really well because of the years and years and years I spent on footwork. So I found that to be uh, pretty useful. Yeah. Well, Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do, the, uh, the footwork was based, I mean, there was other footwork too, but yeah, the in and out was fencing is what he studied to be able to go with this, uh, um, what do you call it? Straight blast. I think it was his front hand. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. if you look at the tower of Jeet Kune Do, you'll see a bunch of fencing sketches in there. So absolutely. Now with your success, again, looking back, how much do you attribute your athleticism as a fencer to maybe the baseball or gymnastics that you did prior? Do you mean like how well was any of that stuff useful in that? Yeah, well, cross- I- physical crossover. So it doesn't have to be specific, but whether it was the explosiveness of running for a base or whether it was, you know, the the strength you developed in your legs from the gymnastics or upper body. I mean, did you, did you retroactively see, cause I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of people that go to a fencing club maybe don't have multi-sports behind them. You know, it's a certain kind of person that you see a lot of times in fencing. So I wonder if being a multi-sport athlete, if there was crossover of some of those sports onto the fencing strip itself. Gotcha. Okay. No, I think what, crossed over really the most was just the training ethic because you don't need to be strong, right? You don't need to have a strong upper body. Um, strong legs will definitely help to keep you from getting tired. Um, but just the general work ethic and knowing, okay, this is what I need to focus on, right? If I need to get my, uh, fastball to be faster, right? Okay. Maybe use a different, slight different hand position on there, or really you just got to just throw harder, right? Or you can use more turning in the body or more effort from your legs and stuff to get the ball to go faster. Well, fencing is I would say it's about 80, 80% mental, right? About 20% physical, but the physical aspect is like 90% footwork. So if that, if that makes any sense. So really it's just, it's a thinking man's game because I've been worked by men who are 40 years, my senior, right? Just because they, they know it all. They've seen it all. They know how hard they need to work to get the touches that they need. And they'll just, they'll just wear you down from a sheer experience. Right? So, uh, I found that yeah, being strong or having upper, upper body strength was like useful for other things, but not in fencing. Because because my arms were bigger, it means they were more tired from having to hold them up, right? Whereas if I'm fencing a, somebody who's much slimmer um, and is built more toward that sport, they have a much easier time fencing against me because I got a lot more mass to move than, than they would. Um, so really it was just about uh, 
work ethic, right? And being able to like, okay, I've been able to hone my focus on this and be the best baseball player I could be. Um, I was able to do this in gymnastics, X, Y, and Z, or practice, you know, back handspring, back tucks, and step outs, all that stuff. Um, so when it came to fencing, I really just tried to focus on, okay, I'll do one thing at a time, you know, whether it's point control, footwork, uh, blade work, parry work, stuff like that. So. Yeah, very interesting. I fenced a little bit, but I was simultaneously doing the stage combat training. So I ended up getting into stunts. So it was interesting because, you know, you're exaggerating on stage, but then when you go to real fencing, your, your moves are so minute. You know, it was, it was, it was great because I took the real fencing onto the stage and it made the lunges look a lot more convincing. But I found that, you know, it, the exaggeration of a stage sword almost worked against the finesse that you needed with a, with a blade or a saber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's totally correct. You know, it's a whole whole different world, um, and I think a lot of people underestimate how much finesse it really does take just to be able to manipulate the the tip on like because I'm a foilist, you know. So to to be able to manipulate the the end, it's takes a lot of practice to be able to move in really small circles or um, just move the blade just enough because it's not so much about speed as it is about timing. If you have superb timing, the fastest guy in the world could come at you. And if your timing is good, you'll catch his parry right before he hits you and you'll repost on him before he can get away. So that's what I try to instill in uh, some of my students and stuff that I've had throughout the years. It's like just try and work on having superb timing. See the action. It's always about seeing the action. You don't ever want to guess. You shouldn't have to. If you're setting up your attacks right or your response to an attack correctly, you'll see it as it's happening as opposed to having to guess what your opponent's going to do. And a, and a correct attack set up well there's no guesswork there because you know that everything you've done is going to draw the guy into your four or your six. And those are just uh, parries that you can take, but that your previous action is going to put him right where he needs to be in order for you to capitalize on that. Well, I know that fencing took you all over the world as well. So tell me about some of the adventures and or um, titles that you won prior to the accident. Oh, well, I didn't actually start traveling the world in fencing until after the accident. Oh, really? Um, yeah, all the stuff I did before, I was just your standard run of the mill, um, just foilist, really. You know, yeah, I, I had I had an A, but I mean, there's a plethora of A's out there. There's a lot of them, and you know, my goal in fencing because I was so much older, right? Because our Olympians they were uh, 17, 18, 19 years old, right? Um, by the time I'd come back to fencing, I was already 25, and by the time I got hurt, I was 32. So I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm an A. I should be able to maintain this until I hit 40, and then I wanted to make the senior team. Or not, sorry, not senior team, but the veteran team. Because when you turn 40, then you're in like the veteran group. So I was like, I bet I can maintain this and just try and get on the veteran world team. So that's what I wanted to do. Um, but no, I didn't really start doing the cool international travel until after the accident. Prior to that, I just did normal national travel. I would train in Chicago sometimes. Um, I had a job in the... Um, energy engineering industry that let me travel a lot. So I was in New York and California every week. So I would fence out at a Brooklyn bridge fencing center, which was ran by a buddy of mine, Dan, um, it's uh, out in Brooklyn. And then I would go out to a club out in California, um, who was ran by a guy named Golubitsky, who was uh, supposedly one of the best foilists to ever live. He was very, very good during his time. And I'd go out and fence at his club every now and then, um, so that was really some of the traveling I got to do when I still had, you know, both my legs. All right. Well, let's walk through your entry into law enforcement. So you were doing that, that job prior that you were traveling East and West coast. Um, so walk me through getting into that and then, you know, what made you decide to go into the first responder profession? Uh, honestly, it's, 
it's really not that cool of a story. <laughs> I was talking to my dad one day on on the phone, and I know I needed some I needed some something else to do. And I think this was like 2000. This might have been 2010, 2011. And like I said, he he left the the sheriff's office as a captain um, of the county. And he suggests he's like, you know, I think I think you would enjoy police work. And I was like, I don't know why you would think that. Now, when he's telling me this, I had dreads halfway down my back, right? And I had like a beard. I didn't I didn't want to cut my dreads off because he had suggested I go to the Air Force. I'm like, I'm not cutting my hair. I don't want to do it. Um, so he's like, I think you would really enjoy police work. It's a lot of fun. It can be rewarding at times. Yada yada. I was like, oh, you know, it's something I'll think about. So at in 2010, at the end of 2010, I was uh, working as an intern for the State Department over in Frankfurt. And I, when I was coming back, I was like, okay, well, I still don't have a job. And I was in grad school at the time. So I was like, I still need to finish my, my master's. Um, well, what am I going to do when I get back? I still didn't have any idea. So I came back um, from Germany and I applied for a job at the local Air Force base out here uh, doing intelligence work for one of their organizations. And after the interview that I had, you know, they said I did a really good job. They, they were like, yeah, you're a shoo-in for the position. I was like, that's fantastic. Um, so I was like, super excited about that, and that was in late November of uh, 2011, I believe. Well, that was uh, during the Obama administration. I believe there was a sequester that had happened, so that Air Force base lost all its funding. The job that I was uh, projected to get got eliminated because they ran out of funding and they couldn't afford to have the position anymore, so I didn't get it. So now it's April 2012, and I'm sitting around. I'm like, now I don't really know what I'm going to do, and at that time there were no um, there were no tests happening for the police department. So I was like, I need to do something else. So I called my buddy and I was like, man, I need a job because I knew he was managing some kind of, it was like a lighting company or something like that. I wasn't really sure, but I was like, man, I need a job. And like, oh, you can come work, do what I'm doing. And I was like, sure, man, whatever. I, I don't care. I need, I need to do something. So I, I got on with him. I got trained in like the lighting industry and we basically just retrofitted lights in uh, commercial buildings and schools all throughout the state, some in Kentucky, some in Indiana. Um, that small company got bought out by a larger company a few years later, I ended up working for them and they're like, Oh, well you've got a degree from college. So we're going to set you up with this traveling gig. And that's how I ended up in New York and California. Well, when I started the job in the lighting industry, um, with my buddy, Brian, after he got me the job, there was a, uh, a hiring process for the police department was in, I think the test was in 2013, maybe. Um, I'd already been working in the lighting industry for a little bit at that time. And I was like, you know what, I'll just take the test on the off chance that, you know, I end up getting this job. But I knew it was a quite a long process, so I really wasn't in a rush. So I went ahead and took the test. There was like 2,000 people that were there. It was a massive test that year. And then I forgot about it because I knew it was a long process. Didn't think anything of it. Um, that other company, like I said, bought out the smaller company that I worked for. That was in like late 2014, I believe. And then come 2015, I had asked my girlfriend of what, four and a half, five years at that time. She's my wife now. We've been together 10 years now, but um, I'd asked her if um, she wanted to marry me that February. And then she told me three months later that she was pregnant. And I was like, oh no, that's like May. I mean, I oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I was, doing, I was excited about it, but I was doing this job where I was traveling you know, all the time and I was like, I need to be home. Well, that was in May. And then in June, I got a letter from the department saying, hey, the next class starts this October. Are you still willing to be in? And I was like, oh, that works out great. Cause then I'll be home. I won't be gone all the time. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I fell into it really. You know, it was never like a big calling for me. It was more of a suggestion. All right. Well then walk me through, um, kind of like the, the, the physical requirements for the testing, um, with you being an athlete, I'm assuming that you had no problem with that. 
and then what the the kind of academy era was like for you oh sure um so the initial testing um is just a run push-ups and sit-ups and what was funny is as i was preparing myself for it like i would anything else because just from being an athlete all my life the the minimums right are like 25 sit-ups 25 push-ups and you got to run a mile and a half and like under uh, i don't know it was like 13 minutes because it was based on your age group so i did everything to the youngest standard um, cause it was a little harder than my, my age standard was pretty easy. Um, and they're the Cooper standards. You can actually look them up online. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to crush this. Well, the initial test, I was, uh, unaware. You only had to do the minimum. Once you hit the minimum, you didn't have to do anymore. So I'm like, I'm going to crank out like 70 pushups. I hit 25. She was like, stop. I was like, what do you mean? Stop. I was like, I'm not even warm yet. She's like, no, you only got to do 25. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then I do the sit-ups, knock those out. And then it comes to our running group, right? And there were seven of us in it. And there was this like cock diesel bodybuilder guy he was huge i was like man this guy's gonna be great and then there was this really tall light-skinned black guy uh, who actually ended up being in my class with me um and i don't even remember the other guys who were in the group so they, they say run well that light-skinned dude ran like a gazelle I mean, he ran a lap around me he finished super quick i was like that's impressive so i i ended up finishing second in my group out of seven and then that bodybuilder dude we had to be done like i said in under 13 minutes it took him 20 22 minutes i think to run a mile and a half I was like, wow, all that muscle counts for nothing. <laughs> I was thinking he was going to blow it out of the water, and he, it just couldn't. Now, it didn't help that it was uh, crazy hot that day when we ran, but you know, it ended up uh, ended up passing it no problem. And then the other parts of the process, you got to hey, you got a um, like a psychological exam that you got to do. That's pretty easy. You sit there, you talk to a guy who just like evaluates you, um, and then you uh, you have. Another physical fitness test you do before they make sure you get in to make sure that you're they're good, and you have uh, a test where what's the other test? I'm trying to think. There's like one other test that you got to do. It's pretty standard. Then they do your background, make sure you know you don't have any like major issues. And you do a polygraph and they ask you some questions, and that's pretty much it. And then you wait. The process ends, and they say, "Hey, here's your start date." Um, and then we started that. Uh, that October, I believe, is when we started the academy classes. There, beginning of October of uh, 2015. Brilliant. All right. What about um, defensive tactics? Did you do unarmed combat? You mentioned about striking. Did you do any any jujitsu type stuff and or um, any weapons training outside of, of range work? Yes. The yes, the defensive tactics part of the academy is probably the most fun and can be the hardest part for some people. It really depends on what your skill set is. I enjoyed it. Um, because especially coming from like uh, an athletic kind of background, anything that pushes your physical capabilities is always loads of fun. But man, it is it, it's exhausting work. You wouldn't think that it would be, but I mean, um, imagine this: you start the day off, um, you get in, you do your roll call, whatever. It's eight o'clock in the morning, and you're like, okay, we're gonna run. You go do a six mile run. You're back. It's nine thirty. Typically, what they would do on a regular day after you run six miles, um, if, let's, let's say you're back. Yeah, it's nine thirty. Well, they'll let you shower, get cleaned up. Class won't start till 10. You got a little nice little half-hour break. Calm down. But when you do your defensive tactics, it's a whole different world. You come back, 9.30, there is no cool down. You go straight to the room, and then they work you. There's like three hours of cardio. You do cardio until like 12 o'clock. And then you go to lunch. Then you come back, and then you work on like some of the ground game stuff or um, just like how to how to talk to people, how to approach people, where to keep your hands placed and stuff like that. But the, uh, the, the really intense cardio aspects of it were really difficult for some people. Um, and, and, you know, as they would say, say, embrace the suck, right? So, you know, it's coming. You just, you, you take it and you got to make, make yourself enjoy it, really. 
So when when you actually got on the street, you're working with the FTO. Like what what was that like for you with with the different careers that you had with you know the high level of sports, knowing that your dad did that job. What was it when you were actually wearing the uniform doing the job? Did you have any kind of aha moments or oh shit moments? <laughs> sure, sure. The the first aha moment I even remember because it was the first one, and it was when I told it. <laughs> it was a normal call. People were being kind of rowdy. I told the guy sit down and shut up, and I said it in kind of an affirmative way and pointed at him, and he did it. And the fact that he listened to me, this guy who's a complete stranger, my mind was like. Pfft. I was like, I can't believe that worked because you, you, you do it with a degree of confidence and people will listen to you like, okay, this guy's serious. But if you do it like you're kind of questioning, hey, man, I need you to sit down and be quiet. They're going to look at you and be like, no way, that's not happening. But you assert yourself like you know what you're doing and that's really what most of the game is. You know, you, you act it out like, hey, I, this, you got to take me seriously, respect what I'm saying, right? And you don't need to go overboard with it but because it's – you know, you get what you give. You show respect, you get respect, and that's that's kind of how it works. So that was definitely one of those moments where I was like really surprised. Um, one of the the oh shit moments wasn't a scary thing; it was more of kind of like a learning thing. I remember I was out with my FTO. We we picked up this guy, put him in the back seat, and I I forgot something. I needed to ask my FTO a question. Well, rule number one: you never leave anybody um, in your back seat that is not being watched, right? So somebody's got to stay in the car near the car to make sure nobody comes up, just opens the door and lets the dude skirt. So. I, I get out, I walk over to him, I say, oh, I'm like, hey, 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 Matt, I, I got a question. And he was like, hey, let me ask you something. I was like, what? He's like, did you leave a guy in our back seat? And I was like, huh? And he basically yells at me and I have to go run back to the car and, and uh, get back in there and sit down. And, and I tell you what, I never made that mistake again, though. So, and uh, I made sure to remember, okay, you can't, you can't ever leave these people without anybody watching them because that's really important. So... Now, did you have because you are again, you know, an athlete, and you you have that kind of physical presence? Um, let me preface this: it's a lot of the people I've had on the show that are fit and or you know high level combat athlete as well. They seem to report going hands on a lot less. I think because of that that physical presence, because people look at them and go, "Okay, I'm probably not going to do well challenging this officer. I think I'm just going to comply." Did you did you notice your physicality, even though you're not tall as you said, but you know you're you're an athlete, you have that confidence that 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 was a that factored into de-escalation a lot rather than having to go hands on all the time. Um, I think for me personally, the de-escalation tactics are more about your ability to uh, communicate effectively with people. Can can you take a situation and can you control that situation with just words only? You know, and how well can you do it? How well can you be disarming against an individual when you come up and when you speak to them, right? Because um, you have to understand a lot of times you run into people, you're meeting them when they're already in crisis mode. They're already excited. You're like, okay, how can I bring them back down to reality without this exploding into something more? Um, what I did notice is, no, I, ne- I didn't necessarily need to go hands-on that often, but I'm more willing to and I'm not worried about having to do it. Uh, I'm more likely to grab you with my hands than I am to tase you, right? Because I don't mind just – putting my hands on somebody the first time you do it is really weird it's like really un- unsettling because you're like i'm holding on to somebody i don't even know and like <laughs> but yeah you go through you go through the motions you do what you're supposed to do you know and everything works out great um prime example actually and this again it's, it's one of the i remember it because it's the first time i did it i'm on like three weeks not with my regular fto because he was off that day um so i'm with this other guy and for whatever reason i don't even know why i did it saw this guy walking down the road and he started taking his shirt off and he was like going to walk into traffic. And I was like, something's wrong with that guy. So in my infinite wisdom, I hop out of the car and start chasing after him. I didn't have a reason to chase after him, but I did. And the guy starts taking off. So I'm chasing the guy. 
and I'm running through a backyard, and I run through an alley, then another alley, and then I lose them. And now I don't know where I am. I'm lost, right? And I, I uh, walk around this corner of this garage, and the guy's laying in the grass, right? And he's got his hands like this, but he's only in two inches of grass, so I can see his whole body. <laughs> like, what is this guy doing? So I run over to him, throw him in handcuffs, drag him into the alley. And I remember thinking at that time that uh, the uh, our defensive tactics trainer will say, yeah, you'll go, you'll go mid-brain and your tactics will take over. And that's exactly what happened because I didn't really remember how I got to where I – I got, but I knew the guy was handcuffed. I was safe, but I had no idea where I was. And so I had to backtrack in my mind. Okay, did I run? Okay, I went south through the yard. I went west through the alley, and then I went south again. So I said that, and when I said it on the radio, the guy found me in like 15 seconds. Coming to find out, the guy was just, he was high on cocaine, and that was it. So he went to the hospital, you know, and, and that was that. And I made sure, okay, I'm not going to just jump out on people unless I've really got a reason to do it. And I'm sorry, my kids are. No, you know, no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. This is, you know, the organic nature of these conversations, cats and kids. And like I said, in my background, people have heard my dog barking many a time. Um, all right. Well, then walking through. So you're still relatively new on the force. Um, December 16th, 2016. Um, I've always said that people think that the most dangerous things we do as firefighters are running into burning buildings. I would much rather run in a burning building than stand on a highway in the middle of a Florida you know, rainstorm, for example. I mean, it terrifies me. So talk to me about that day and, you know, kind of walk me through your perception. And then also, you know, give, give me the other people's perspective as well, because I know you weren't able to recall everything that happened. Okay. Um, so let's see, I'll start with roll call, I guess, that day, just like I did in the, uh, the first conversation I had with it. I can only go off what I remember. So... Um, I remember a sergeant at the time that I had saying that, hey, guys, you know, expect really bad weather about uh, 7 o'clock. Uh, there's a crazy storm that's supposed to be coming in. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, it, it happens. It's Ohio. It's what to be expected. The weather's always unpredictable out here. Go out a roll call, driving around, whatever. 7 o'clock hits nothing. I've been uh, talking to my wife. Uh, I was like, hey, I thought the weather's supposed to be bad, but nothing's going on out here. Um, go on a couple other calls uh, around, oh, 10 o'clock, I think, weather started taking a horrible turn. I mean, it just started, it looked like uh, ice rain, essentially. You could hear it hitting the car. Um, and then 11 came around, and it had just gotten progressively worse. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to drive real slow. So I was on routine patrol at the time, and not a lot was going on. Everybody had already gone inside. So uh, I hear a buddy of mine, he calls out a, a crash on the highway. It's about 11.35, 11.40 at night. And he says that there's a crash at 75 in Stanley, which is like a horrible area of the highway. People still – people crash there in broad daylight when it's dry out all the time. It's just a bad area. So he's like, oh, I got a two-car accident up here, yada, yada. Well, he's like, I got a three-car accident. Wait, no, it's four, four cars. And then by the time he was done, he said there were seven cars piled up right in front of him. I was like, okay, that's obviously bad. I'm going to hustle over there because uh, I'm free. I'm not, I'm not held up. I can get out there real quick. So at that point in time when he called out, I was on Wayne Avenue approaching Kiwi, which is just some areas in the in the city. Um, I hop up on the highway, I get on 35, and then uh, as I'm getting on to 75, there was like an officer sitting in what's called the gore of the highway, where like two roads kind of come together, and there was a car partially flipped in front of him, and I was like, you know, what's going on here? He's like, all oh, this car is flipped in front of me. He's like, but that semi over there just had a Toyota Corolla run into the side of it. I was like, okay, I'll go check it out, but I was like, I'm on my way to go help out Hubbard because he called out that traffic crash or whatever, and he's like, okay. Yeah, he's like, that, that's cool. So I pull up behind the semi, um, I call out the stop wake up in the hospital, <laughs> you know? So I, I don't really remember much beyond that. 
Um, I didn't even really remember talking to the driver because I talked to him for like a split second when he came around the passenger side of the semi and was about to walk between his bumper and my front bumper to come up to my driver's side to come talk to me. And I told him, no, nah, man, stay on stay on the passenger side of the, uh, the car because the weather's really bad out here. And I'm guessing that when I walked out of my side of the car to go towards the back, you can hear my car door shut. I stepped out. And by the time I probably took two steps and got into my back bumper is when the other car lost control and hit me. And what I could never really get my head around was like how I didn't see that happening. Because even in, you know, in the police profession, you should be hyper aware of, you know, your entire surroundings. And because the weather was bad, it's not like there was a lot of traffic on the highway. So I should have seen his traffic lights coming towards me because I would have been facing oncoming traffic, which is where you want to be anyway if you're on the highway. You want to see what's coming towards you. But um, like I said, all my memory is erased from there pretty much. So I got nothing to that. I just remember waking up in the hospital. Um, and just before I forget, fast forward like four years later, and I was on this overdose with another person. And the EMT who was there was the guy who picked me up that night on the highway. And I was like, do you remember that night? He's like, well, yeah, of course I remember that night. <laughs> I was like, did I fight you guys in the ambulance? He's like, no, you didn't move at all. Because my memory, now I'm going to go back to the accident. My memory of what happened was is I was fighting the people in the ambulance the whole time until we got to the hospital. So my brain misremembered a lot of those events. I thought I was like grabbing people and doing all this, but no, because everything that I know has been conveyed to me from people who were either on the scene or saw stuff on the news. You know, So when I talked to um, my buddy Brian Camden, the guy who like saved my life, he's the one who like picked me up and slid me over and turned me into my leg and all that stuff. When I talked to him, you know, he, he can fill in a lot of the gaps of what happened once he got there on scene. Um, but as for me, now my memory is kind of all over the place. So I do know I remember waking up in the hospital, though. So let's talk about Brian, because I think that was a very important point. Again, talking about being cool under pressure and, you know, falling to your level of training. And this was four years ago. So this was well, five years ago, almost. Um, so kind of before this kind of big push towards, you know, tourniquets and carrying them. So tell me what he did well tell me tell me what he reported you did um as far as the civilian that you were there to help and then let's talk about what he did for you okay um i mean from from my end uh what was conveyed to me was i i may have moved the guy out of the way so it was uh, i was told sometime later that i might have pushed that guy out of the way and then that's what put me in the way of getting hit by the thing. But that guy still got hit too because both his legs got broken. Um, but when Brian got there on the scene with uh, some of the other officers, um, he saw me laying, I guess I was laying face down, uh, which is how I actually got this mark on my eyebrow here. But I was laying face down. He comes up and he thinks that like I'm dead, obviously, because I'm covered in like a puddle of blood all around me from the head laceration and some other stuff. And he rolls me over and he says, I start talking to him. I don't remember talking to him. I don't remember saying anything, but he says, he remembers me saying, you know, oh, my, you know, my leg hurts. Cause he asked me, like, has anything hurt you? All right. And so his first instinct is naturally, you know, cross my arms over my chest and just start dragging me to take me into the, um, into the cruiser to get me to the hospital as fast as he can. Well, as he's starting to do that, the other officer that's with him said, yo, Brian, stop, look at his leg. And didn't realize my leg was like partially attached by tendons from the lower half of, uh, just below my knee, um, midway through my shin. So they were like, oh, okay. So they grabbed the tourniquet, threw that on, and then right as they were going to continue grabbing me is when the ambulance showed up and then took them from there. But we were trained in the academy how to use the tourniquets because they, they even said that they were important. So each one of us were issued one anyway when we were in the academy just for large traumatic events and stuff like that. Uh, you might hear one of my kids crying. It's 
bad time. So yeah, no worries. <laughs> so you touched on it before about you know when you woke up in the hospital and your mindset. You know after you knew that your family were okay. Um, so walk me through. I want to get to the the physical therapy side because it sounded like you had a great PT during this and a great support from your department. So I want to get that too. But when you first woke up, you know you were this high level athlete the whole time. You were now a tactical athlete as a police officer, and now you wake up and you discover that um, you're going to basically have to have an amputation to your leg. So what was that initial thing like? And then with this analytic positive mindset that you have when did you start formulating your plan for overcoming this injury basically um that didn't start until after i was home and i had to go through a lot of different uh a lot of different mental anguish really to get to that point um i was never really concerned about being able to get there but it's it was humorous in a way. So when I first woke up, I woke up twice. I remember two distinct things. I really only remember four things from being in the hospital, even though I was there 12 days. And oddly enough, the one thing I don't remember, I don't ever remember talking to my wife. I remember seeing her and she told me I talked to her a bunch, but I, anytime I woke up, I was thought like I saw her and like she was asleep or maybe just like sitting there. And I don't remember actually physically speaking to her. But I do remember when I first woke up, um, I looked down at my leg and I, I probably had three to four inches just below my right knee cap, I believe, when I first woke up. <laughs> the first words out of my mouth. Can I cuss on here or no? Yes, you I may. <laughs> so, the first, so the first words out of my mouth was, how the fuck am I supposed to fence? But it sounded really funny because I didn't have any front teeth. So it's like I was talking like this. It sounded like Mike Tyson. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so it made me kind of laugh like when, when, in my head when I said it. And my wife had said to me much later down the road, she's like, yeah, she's like, I told him when they told me that you're gonna have your leg amputated. She's like, he's gonna be really mad because he's not gonna be able to fence. And I was like, he's got that's what he's gonna say when he wakes up. And that was like the first thing I said when I woke up. Um, so I was kind of upset about that, but I was like, you know what? I I got my knee still. Like maybe I'll be able to figure this out. Well, here conversation I had that I don't remember was when the doctor came in and said, hey, we're gonna have to take your knee because you have necrosis and we can't stop the bleeding. So we have to amputate above your knee now. So they had to take like an additional like seven inches from where the injury was up. Now, when I woke up from that, I was in way more pain than what I was in when I originally lost my leg, or at least that's how I remember it, because they had to saw straight through the bottom half of my femur and, and the whole other mess. Um, so I remember I woke up from that, and I was just like in a tremendous amount of pain. And then I I know I had a conversation with the, the chief of police where he'd asked me, he'd said, he's like, He's like, hey, you know, what do you what do you want to do from here on out? So like, you, you, you tell us what you want. How do you need support? What, you know, what would you like to do? And I remember telling us like, whatever is like, whatever I can do. I don't want to do TRU. TRU is like our telephone response unit. Like we take calls over the phone. Like somebody stole my trash can, right? I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I was like, let me go to the academy and I'll rehab there because I knew at the academy I'd have a lot of freedom to do a lot of different things. They have obstacle courses. They got they got weights there. Um, I can tr- work on training shooting because they have a range. They have several ranges there, you know. So I was like, that would be the best place for me to be able to rehab myself. Um, so I, I suggested that to him, and they said, you know, that's fine if that's what you want to do. That's we'll we'll make that happen. So I was like, great. Um, and then I ended up getting out of the hospital. And what I was really upset about, though, of getting out of the hospital, I wanted to be out on Christmas Day because I didn't want my daughter's first Christmas to be spent in a hospital. And unfortunately, the hospital didn't clear me to leave until the 27th of December instead of the 25th because I got in there. I think I got in there at, what, 12 o'clock in the morning on the 17th. So they didn't let me go for 10 more days after that, which I was pretty upset about. But, you know, ended up getting home. Um, 
And then once I was home, I kind of just stayed on the couch for like three weeks. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I, I, I didn't get off the couch. I didn't do anything. I was just trying to get, wrap my head around what was going on. I was in a lot of pain all the time, a tremendous amount of pain. Like you can't even describe it. It's just 24 hours a day, just this incredible sciatic nerve pain that I spent most of my time rubbing the back of my leg, trying to get it away. Um, I tried to find ways to, to think about other things to where I wouldn't concentrate on what the pain felt like. But it, it was unbearable at some time, so I slept a lot, you know. And I was on a lot of medication, you know, thanks to my wife because she kept track of everything. Because I, I certainly couldn't. I'm not in that state. I was on 12 different medications, and if you took the wrong ones at the wrong time and the wrong combination, it would, like, kill you, right? So she kept track of all that stuff for me. Um, but she was telling me there was times I would get up, and I would just be, like, hopping around the, the house, like, highly medicated. But I'm, I'm bleeding from my limbs, so there's, like, a blood trail all throughout the house from – where I got up and she would just find me in other places. And I had no idea I was even doing this stuff because I'm you know, drugged out of my mind. Um, uh, there was one time I was laying on my couch and I thought I heard my daughter crying in the other room. So I'm thinking in my own mind, I got up really quick. I was like, oh, I got to figure out what's wrong with my daughter. And I go over there. But apparently, as it was explained to me, it was like a slow motion event. I got up really, really slow. They're like, what are you doing? And like I slowly hobbled over. Well, I didn't know how to use like uh, a walker with steps. I just fell, landed right on my residual limb. And it was like, Two days after being out of the hospital, well, because I was a fall risk, they have to call the they have to call the ambulance anytime I fall. Um, I can't even explain how much that hurt. Uh, so I'm just laying on the floor next to my garage, just bleeding all over the place. And then they show up, but by the time they got here, I think it was like two two minutes later, they got here, and the pain kind of had subsided by then. It's really really intense for about the first minute when that would happen, and that happened three times that I did that. You think I would learn from the first time, but I didn't. So uh, the, it's really intense for about a minute, and then it subsides really really quick. Um, but then each time you do, it, you kind of like, okay, I don't need to do this until after the third time I did it. I know how to fall now. I know exactly what to do if my prosthetics on or anything like that. And I haven't had any of those, or I haven't had any falls like that happen since then. And then I know you asked me two other things, but were they? Um, well, no, we'll get to the, the physical side now. So, um, from again, listening to your interview with Jim, it sounded like you had a great PT that really put you through over and above what was required. Now I've, I've rehabbed, um, a back injury and then meniscus um not repairs snips basically on on both knees and in my area so it's kind of a retirement you know area so there's a lot of elderly people that are at these um physical therapy places so i had to kind of guide them through hey here's what i need to be able to do we're not talking about sitting at a desk we're talking about i need to be able to you know carry 100 pounds up x amount of stairs and all this kind of stuff so um but it sounded to me like you had a good pt that really put you through the ringer. So talk to me about your physical therapy journey. Um, yeah, so I had, uh, I, I, hold on, I won't be able to do that. Mommy will have to do it. You'll have to ask her. Um, so yeah, my physical therapist was a lady named Kathy and she had come to me and I kind of gave her an idea of like, hey, these are, these are what, my, what my goals to be. I was like, I really don't care how hard they are. This is what I need to be able to do. And I told her what's most important for me is be able to try and walk as naturally as possible because I don't – it's, it's going to be hard enough being on the street with a prosthetic. It's going to be way harder people can recognize, oh, I can get one over on this guy because he's got this prosthetic, right? So I need to have that hidden. What really worked in my favor is I work at night. So most people aren't going to be worried about, one, the type of shoes you're wearing, and two, how the officer's walking. They're thinking, man, I got warrants. I'm not trying to get arrested. So they're really not worried about minute stuff like that. But I was like, it's really important to me that I can I can walk per, like properly, ascend and descend stairs in some kind of fashion. It's not going to be um, so recognizable that people are going to be like, oh, I can just skirt away from this guy. It's not going to be a problem. 
Um, so, but yeah, her name's Kathy and I worked with her for about six months and you know, it was a, it was a great, great experience. Um, she definitely challenged me in a lot of different ways and ways that were like super aggravating. Like we had to go out to the, uh, to the fire training house. There's like 90 steps there. And she's like, all right, we're going to put on all your equipment. You're going to walk up and down the steps. I thought I'd do it once. And she's like, we're going to do it again. <laughs> and I was like, why, why do I need to keep doing this? But I mean, I got it cause it, it needed to be fluid. It needed to be efficient. So, and yeah, I mean, I got tired, but that was the whole, that was the whole purpose of what it is she was trying to do. And again, that's where that, the, the athleticism and just being an athlete in general plays into being able to continue to push yourself and to keep going simply because the person next to you is telling you to do it, right? Coach says, Hey, we're running another lap. You do it. You don't say, man, you know, I can't run another lap. No, you just do it because you're told to do it. So if she said, this is what we're doing, I'm like, all right, that's what we're doing. Um, what was really cool and beneficial was it came to a point where she's like, okay, well, you're going to need to learn how your body works now. So we're going to need somebody to come in and fight you or have some kind of combat experience. I was like, okay. So I couldn't think of anybody better than my defensive tactics instructor. Um, so I contacted him and I was like, hey, you know, this is this is what I'm gonna need. I need somebody to come in and basically just beat me up. I need to see how this works. And he was like, he's like, all right, you know, I'll come in. So I'm thinking it's gonna be like a one-off thing. Man, that dude came in two times a week for two hours for like four months and just beat the crap out of me. It was miserable <laughs> because we went over the same like defensive defensive tactics warm up stuff. Now it wasn't nearly as intense as like the the three hours we would normally do. But he worked me for about forty minutes. And when you're doing a lot of the same stuff with just one leg to assist, you know, I still had my prosthetic on, but it was heavy. You know, it was hard to move around. And he made me do all the same stuff. And he's like, "Hey, nobody on the street's gonna care that you're like this." He's like, "I certainly don't." And then he would just jump on me and start fighting me, and I'd have to basically survive it. And I mean, it's it, it was really good training. Um, because yeah, he, you know, he's hundred percent right. Cause what do you do in a fight for your life when your prosthetic comes off? You know, what do you do if it gets turned around or something like that? You know, it's like, that's this kind of stuff you need to know ahead of time and not when you're just out there on the street, you know? So he would work in like, he'd work me in scenarios where he put me in a corner or something and he'd be like, okay, he's like, you got a guy approaching you or you've already got a guy in the corner. This is how you're going to get him down. And he would actually look at my leg and be like, okay, this is how it bends. He's like, okay, this is the most beneficial way or this would be the easiest way or most uh, efficient way for you to get somebody on the ground and maintain that position. He's like, hey, if all else fails, just hit him with it, <laughs> you know, because it's really hard. So, I mean, that would that could work to my advantage too. So, you know, I, I really appreciate a lot of the the time and effort that, that he put in and my, my physical therapist put into it because he didn't have to do that, you know. He, I'm sure he's got a caseload that he could work on and stuff like that, but he took, took time out of his own day to come and, and work with me for – you know, for months on end to make sure I could go out and, and be doing the same stuff I was doing before. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's so interesting to hear because here you are, you know, post amputation and you're putting yourself through scenarios that, you know, we struggle to get completely able bodied firefighters officers to do to maintain their fitness, to maintain their, their defensive tactics training, you know. So I think, you know, Anytime someone's missing a limb or in a wheelchair, people say, oh, they're so inspirational. But I think what to me is the inspiring element is that you just worked around that injury and, but you still, you didn't want to just, just hit the bare minimum, kind of like the push-ups. You know, you didn't want to go to 25. You're like, All right. I lost my leg and I want to be better than, you know, before so that when I come back, you know, that I'm, I'm not just barely back. I'm, I'm way surpassing the expectations. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's 100% correct. And what I really liked is when I first got to the academy, um, 
somebody told me, he's like, yeah, he's like, I know he's like, I know you're missing a leg, but don't be expected to be treated any different. I was like, don't, please don't, please don't treat me any different. Treat me the exact same as you would before, right? You know, if I'm dragging ass or I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing, just get on me about it. There's no reason I should get any special treatment. I don't want special treatment. I've never wanted special treatment. I just want to go in and be recognized for doing a good job when I do a good job, you know? But don't just pretend like that's something that like needs to be done just because of the situation that I'm in. Because I run into so many people that are like, oh, you know, I broke my arm or I broke my foot or, you know, I, I got hurt in this foot chase or something like that. And like, oh, but it's nothing compared to you. It's like I don't have a, a monopoly on injuries because I got hurt. You could still be hurt, right? Like bad things can still happen to you. It doesn't matter that it doesn't meet like necessarily the same standard of what happened to me. It's just an unfortunate accident. So a lot of people would be like uncomfortable saying stuff to me. Now, I would make fun of people all the time. Like, oh, I need to take off. Because, you know, I, I got an injury to my knee. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. You, you probably don't, but, you know, that's fine. Um, so, you know, you, it's all about just give and take, really. So I, I didn't expect anybody to treat me any differently just because of what happened. Now, the timing obviously is is better than if you had that happen, say, 20 years ago because the adaptive community is just so incredible now. And sadly, I think it's out of tragedy. A lot of our vets that are coming back missing limbs. But, you know, whether it's CrossFit, the adaptive space there, with you know, the Wheel Ward and all these organizations, um, what were... What were some of the elements, whether it was interesting prostheses, whether it was just the ability to to find, like... Uh, similar ability in other athletes were there any kind of pros from that adaptive community that you brought into your personal journey well what i had to do um initially because it, it was like learning anything really because it was also new to me I, I reached out to a lot of people um on instagram really that i that i found that were either athletes that were like this um, or had similar the similar leg that i had the same one like hey can you do this can you do that what's difficult to do with this, um, what can I do to improve that? Um, so I would talk to this guy about like running and stuff because he was phenomenal at running. I was like, I don't know how you figure out how to do it. And his answer kind of sucked because he was like, you just got to practice. I was like, that doesn't really help. But um, when it came to like walking properly, um, I would find people who had really, really good gait. Like, okay, what did you do? And they would talk about, you know, flexing through the step, through your glute, you know, pulling yourself once your heel hits the ground through the step. I was like, that will keep your hips even and all that stuff. Stuff I wouldn't normally know. Because when it comes to the prosthetic itself, your 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 prosthetists, they can put it on, right? And they can look at it and be like, okay, yeah, it fits, or your hips are the way that they should be. But they don't actually have to walk in it. So a lot of the adjustments you actually have to do on your own later after the fact, which if you're not used to it, it's kind of scary to start touching all the mechanics and all, all the uh, components of the prosthetic and mess around with it. And God forbid, like something goes wrong or you strip something or the leg's too short now it's too long and, and you can't use it properly. So I didn't even really start messing with mine until maybe about about a year later after I got it because I got it on May I got it on May 25th um, is when I got my first prosthetic. So it was probably about almost six months after the accident. And uh, I didn't really start messing with it until about a year later when I got really comfortable with it. Now I just carry an Allen wrench in my back pocket and whenever I need to make an adjustment, I can make an adjustment on the spot. I'm really not too concerned about it because I'm super used to it. Um, I would ask people for like tips on like how to get up and down stairs, uh, tips for falling. That's a big one. You know, what's the best way to fall? You know, how do you pick yourself up? Now, I, I knew a decent amount of falling because I used to teach that when I was in gymnastics. Because if you got girls falling off balance beams or uneven bars or even on the tumbling floor, falling is falling properly is really important because you don't want to break anything. You know, you, you know especially in gymnastics, you know, don't put your hands out. You don't want to splay your arms out because that's how you break arms and stuff. But you, it's how to tuck and roll, you know, to, to break your fall. So 
knowing that, and I've, I've fallen a few times, you know, but I haven't broken any of my other extremities because of it. So that was a, another important thing that I had asked a lot of them about. Um, and really they were all just there to kind of support each other, you know, cause there's going to be days where it's like just really rough. You don't want to do anything. And I mean, I get that, but being able to talk to them or them being able to talk to me uh, about issues that they're having is always really nice. And it's nice to have that kind of uh, community out there and to see that people can still be really athletic despite, you know, having some of these limitations. There's a girl I follow on there. She has no legs and she runs marathons, which is really impressive because I don't run at all. And she can run 26 miles. No problem. <laughs> Yeah, incredible. Absolutely incredible. I've had quite a few, you know, different amputees of different backgrounds, whether it's congenital, whether it was from, you know, military. Um, Mark Ormrod is missing two legs and one of his arms and rolls jujitsu. And, you know, I mean, there's just, you know, um, Kyle Maynard is a congenital amputee. He's again wrestled. He's climbed mountains. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. These men and women showing us, you know, it's not. I can't do it. Let's just let me figure out how to do it, you know, and, and you like, you can't compare injuries or compare trauma. It's a very dangerous thing to do. But I think the the real thing that we need to draw is if person X can get, get through their injury or their, you know, disease or whatever it is, then we can find a roadmap for our own journey, you know, from something less severe back to a healthy functioning body or, you know, like I said, around the back injury, whatever it looks like. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and I get that sometimes when I'm out, if I run into another amputee and they see like how I'm walking or something, they'll ask me questions, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm kind of new to this, blah, blah, blah. And all that. they'll ask me something. They're much less afraid to ask me a question than somebody who is, doesn't, but wants to know about it. Right. The first person to ever ask me about it was a five-year-old kid at Lowe's. It's like, oh my God, mister, what happened? <laughs> and I had to explain it to him. And it was funny. He asked me out of genuine concern, but his dad was sitting next to him was like, no, 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 don't you, you can't ask him that. Thinking it was like really impolite, but I was like, really, I'm not, you know, I'm not bothered by it. And then my my oldest daughter, she's going to start kindergarten, and we had to go to her school to meet some people. And one of the ladies handing out information as we walk in had just got her leg amputated below knee back in January, and had all kinds of questions and didn't know what to do. She was like, "Hey, I'm uncomfortable when I'm walking. My hips hurting me." Yada yada. And I, I watched her walk. I was like, "Okay." I was like, "You're hiking for one, which means you're worried that your leg is too long and that your toe's going to hit the ground that you're going to fall." And she's like, "That's exactly what's happening." And I was like, "Yeah, you would you wouldn't know that um, if if you're not familiar with what that looks like when it happens." I was like, "But I know it just from going through it." So I was like, "Well, let me see your leg." So I looked at. It, I was like, "I can adjust it for you, no problem." So I went down to do it, but then I realized that the way that her pylon is set up, that's just like the pole that connects the the lower part of the prosthetic to the foot was already at max length. If it was a little shorter, I could have shortened it for, but it wasn't. So I told her, I was like, when you go to your prosthetist, have them cut off a centimeter of pipe so you can make it slightly shorter. Because I actually keep my leg artificially shorter um, to make it easier to go up steps so my toe doesn't kick the ground. Now, when I say artificially shorter, it might be like half a millimeter or a millimeter at most. But that's something you notice as an amputee when you walk. You notice really, really minute changes in your prosthetic. Or you can put me on blindfold and make an adjustment and I would know right away. So, um, I, I think that's really cool to just be able to, to see people at different stages of the process and be able to help them through that process. Yeah. Well, what's so amazing about your story is you didn't end up answering telephone, telephone calls about missing garbage cans. You ended up going back <laughs> to full duty. So firstly, talk to me about your department, because again, the, I mean, I've had people on here that were shot or run over and their department basically abandoned them you know, and they were, they were really badly hurt and, you know, workman's comp and all that stuff. It sounds to me like you had support not only from, you know, the administration, but obviously the, the people that helped you with your recovery as well. So talk to me about the conversation with your chief about 
actually coming back to full duty and then and then what that looked like when you walked back through the door? Um, so I can only speak on what it is I know because I don't know about what happened in like the, the inner workings of like the department. I think it was more of a thing where, well, we'd never had anything like this happen. We don't even know what the end result of this is going to be. So we're just going to wait it out and see where it goes from here. You know, because I had only been on eight months, right? And probationary period for police is nine months. They can fire you, no no questions asked, nine months. They'd be like, yo, you're just horrible at typing. You, you have tons of mistakes in your reports. You don't look for the proper information. They can just cut you loose, right? And when you sign that contract, it even says within nine months they can do that. Well, what was a really reassuring thing is when the chief of police came in to meet me, I had um, I had uh, already, like I said, worked for about eight months. And the only thing you really got on the street is your reputation, right? So I've been working really hard to make sure I, I've been doing a uh, the best job that I could. So I developed a, a decent reputation, I guess, at that time. Because when he came to see me at the uh, at the hospital, he said, hey, don't worry. I just want to let you know. I know you're 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 only out of your um, you're nine months on by, I was like, five months. It would have had nine months on, I think, uh, in less than a month or something from when I got hit. And he said, don't worry about it. He's like, we'll just consider you fully on out of probation. It's not going to be a problem. It's like, and then you can just work on your recovery from there. And then we'll kind of go from there and see what your career is going to look like. So I was like, cool. But in the back of my head, I was like, I got no problem getting back to like where I was before. And what was really encouraging was nobody ever said, what are you going to do after this? Implying that I'm not going to continue to do police work. They just said, when do you think you'll be back on the street? So that was really encouraging, you know, because it didn't make anybody as worried that I wasn't going to be, you know, maybe they were just blowing smoke up my ass because they didn't want to be like, yo, you're never coming back. <laughs> but they didn't say like, you know, what are you going to do afterwards? They were just like, okay, we'll see when you get back on the street. So I actually came back 364 days later, which I was super excited about. because like, yes, I beat it by a year. I'm, I'm here one day before a year. Um, and what kind of sucked though is I'd done all my physical therapy, all my training and everything in the early months of summer like the ass into spring right in the beginning of summer so i had never walked on snow my first day back is like the second week in december and there's snow on the ground and i was like i have no idea how to walk around in this stuff so of course i'm i'm out with uh now they put me out with another officer because we had changed our um our the systems on our mdts and the cars were completely different so i'd never even seen them before so i didn't even know how to use it so they put me out with another officer for uh, quite a while actually so when I first got back, um, I was relearning how to use the computer, relearning how to use all the other systems. My passwords had all expired, so I needed to reset everything. I needed to relearn all the streets because it's not like I had years on. I had eight months, so I had plenty of time to forget the streets. I was off work longer than I was actually on as a police officer, so I had to relearn everything, even how to talk on the radio and make traffic stops and stuff. So there was one night I was out with uh, a buddy of mine, and we get this call that there's like this guy up on these train tracks – and there's snow everywhere. And we get up to the top of these train tracks. I'm looking around. I'm like, I don't see anybody. So people start descending this hill on the other side of the tracks. And I see one person fall. And then I see another person falls. I'm like, man, these people have two legs and they're falling. I was like, ah, oh, screw this. So I turn around and I put my prosthetic knee into the ground and I just slid down the hill backwards because <laughs> it, it worked just fine, you know, because that's how, that's how I had to figure out how to navigate, you know. And there was a couple times, you know, you can't feel ice with a prosthetic leg. So you're going to fall. You're going to fall. There's really nothing you can do to stop that. So you just kind of let it happen. And I remember I was, uh, I was on a call. I wasn't even on a call. Sorry. I was patrolling and I saw this car door that was open 
And I walked over to the guy's house and, hey, man, you know, you left your car door open. Well, he had three steps that I had to walk up to get to his door. I was like, man, you left your car door open. And he's like, oh, I need to go shut that. So I was like, all right, man, well, I was like, I'm going to leave. So I turn around to go walk down the steps. Man, I slip on that first step and I just fly like four feet straight drop on my back. He's standing over top of me like one of those scenes from Home Alone 2 looking at me <laughs> like, Are you all right? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to be good. I got, the, I got the wind knocked out of me completely. But he didn't even know that I had a prosthetic leg. He just thought I slipped and fell on some ice. And then, like I got up and kind of just walked off, you know. So I took my fair share of tumbles early early on in the beginning. You know, and they happen on occasion because you really can't do anything about the crappy weather. And Ohio weather is very unpredictable, especially in the colder months. So you kind of just uh, take everything in stride and play it by ear and learn as you go, you know. Now, conversely, what because you talked about, you know, some of the, the slips and falls. What are some of the moments where you realize that your prosthetic was, was uh, you know, an extra tool? that you know most any anyone with an actual human foot inside their boot wouldn't be able to do um oh <laughs> okay here's here's a good example uh when it comes to dogs dog calls right somebody says there's a vicious dog it's great take your prosthetic leg stick it out of the car if it attacks the hell out of your foot well, don't get out of the car because the dog will bite you. Prosthetic foot, I really don't care. Um, or if you got an old abandoned property that you're checking and you got a door that you need to move out of the way, well, if I grab onto my ankle and I just ram my my uh, where my knee would be into it, bust that door right open, no problem, and kind of keep on moving through. So there's all kinds of things you can use it for. Now, everybody always teases me and they say they're waiting for that day when I take my prosthetic off and have to use it as a weapon and like hit somebody with it. But I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. But yeah. <laughs> that would probably be a viral video. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it would be. So that's uh, those are the kind of things like I would use it for. It's actually really useful for if I'm if I'm having to sit on the ground, like, you know, the kneeling position a lot of athletes will get into a talk, like a coach talking like a locker room. Well, I can sit like that for an extended period of time because um, I use my right knee for everything. So I can just sit and rest on that and it doesn't hurt at all. So if I need to help somebody with a, a tire that needs to be replaced or I need to get on the ground and like look for something, I can sit on that for forever. So it's been useful for that. Um I was always worried the first time about falling on it because I would think it would hurt tremendously. But actually the first time I ever did fall, I remember it. Specifically, I was taking the garbage out at the house and snow was piling up on my toe and I couldn't feel it. And then I go to take a step and my foot just wasn't there. And so I ended up falling right on my knee and I was like, oh, this doesn't feel like anything. It literally feels like nothing. It doesn't hurt nothing. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. So uh, ever since then, I've never been worried about falling onto the knee. So I use it uh, for that as far as advantages go. So. Beautiful, yeah, because the, the the end of the femur from a lot of the amputees that have been on here, getting getting comfortable putting pressure on that at first was was seems to be one of the most challenging things. The pain that you get from your body weight being on the end of your bone like that. Yeah, that's that's horrible, and I mean even to this day I can't do it outside of the uh, I can't do it outside of the prosthetic. Like if I tried, no, that's it's painful. Like even a little bit, it's painful. Like you have to do like some sensational training and stuff to get used to things touching it, um, which is pretty easy. Like I would lay on my stomach with my like right residual limb hang down, and then I would just like rub it so it like barely hit the carpet to get used to that sensation of something touching it all the time. Um, but other than that, no, you can't put any pressure on it. I could probably put maybe. 10 15 pounds on them for like kind of start hurting but once it's in the socket no nah, it's fine i mean i can put tons of weight on my back and like carry it around and it won't be a problem but i think it's because the the socket kind of spreads out the weight and where it is whereas if it's just on the end of your limb it's centralized now in the u.s if we did what was called like a knee disarticulation type of surgery which is 
not many people get it here. Um, that's where you keep your femur. But the problem is it sets, it gives your knee center off balance when you do that. That's why they amputate above the femur here. So then when they put the knee on, it's level. But with that one, you can weight bear on that because you have your femur bone there. And a lot of times they'll cap it, the end off with like your kneecap. So you can put weight on it, no problem. But again, that's not a popular surgery here, so we don't typically get it. So it's really hard to weight bear if you're not wearing a prosthetic. Right. Well, speaking of that, so when you were uh, an A fencer, you know, as you said, you were competing nationally. So talk me through your journey into wheelchair fencing and then how that took you around the world. Sure. So my buddy, my buddy LeRon had actually brought it up to me. He was one of the uh, – there There was like five A-fencers in Ohio. It was me, the Strebs, my buddy LeRon, my buddy Ryan. And me, LeRon, and Ryan all fenced out of a club in Cincinnati together. LeRon is now in New York City. Uh, Ryan's still in Cincinnati. The Strebs are still in Columbus, I believe. And um, so he came to visit me when I was you know, recovering on the couch. And he's like, man, you ever consider wheelchair fencing? He's like, I know it's not like fencing saying that, blah, blah, blah. And at that point in time, I don't think mentally I was really in a position that I even wanted to hear anything about it. Kind of like, now my life is ruined. I'll never fence again, blah, 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 blah. I was like, I don't want to fence sitting down. I mean, think about it. You take a sport that is 90% footwork and you remove that entirely. That's like telling a boxer not to punch with his right arm, <laughs> right? Um, so I was like, nah, I was like, I don't think I, I want to do that. So I, I put it out of my head. Well, I got approached in 2018 by a, uh, an individual who, uh, owns and runs a club in Columbus, um, and said that he had spoken to the guy who'd run the USFA, which was the United States Fencing Association. And they were like, Hey, are you interested in possibly representing the U S internationally in competitions? And I was like, man, you know, I don't really know. Um, I was like, I can't afford to do that let alone, I don't know if I have the time. They're like, well, you know, we can handle the expense end of it if you're interested in doing it. And I was like, um, I was like, okay, you know what? What the hell? I'll give it a shot. So I had gone out, I had practiced twice <laughs> in a chair, but from years and years and years of fencing, you don't really forget it that fast. So I still knew how to use my hand, stuff like that. So my hand was still relatively fast. I just couldn't use any footwork. And learning how to maneuver your body in a chair was way different because you created distance in standard fencing with your feet, right? You don't have to do a whole lot of body aversion. In wheelchair, it's all body aversion because you're at a fixed distance. You can't get any further or closer to the person than where you're at in the chair. So you have to really learn how to move your body. Um, so I, I trained and did a couple lessons there in uh, Columbus to try and get used to that. And then I went off to my first international competition in Saskatoon, Canada in 2018, which was the Pan Am Games. And I ended up winning. I, I won uh, gold at the, at the competition, which was I was actually really surprised about. Um, and then that's what kind of put my name out there as a possible contender for the uh, the 2020 Olympics. And then kind of from there is when it, the ball really got rolling. I started going to all these international competitions. And, and what was really a, an eye-opener for me was just how damn talented the, the pool of the, the upper-level wheelchair individuals were outside of this hemisphere, you know. Um, there's just so much talent. The, the French, the Italians, the, the Chinese, the Chinese are phenomenal wheelchair fencers. They're so incredibly fast. The Italians have like an incredible amount of finesse. The Russians are very good. Um, so it was just cra crazy, you know, Hungarians are, are very good too. So, uh, I, I went out to my first international competition in, uh, well, outside of Saskatoon, I went to Japan in 2018, fenced out there. Um, and it was it was wild. I won my first bout against this Japanese guy, and then I fenced this Italian guy. And or I'm sorry, no, I fenced Italian. I fenced a uh, guy named 
I think Yi, and Yi was like the guy who won the Rio Paralympics, and I, I didn't know it. I didn't know who any of these people were. Man, I just got worked. I was like, oh my god. I was like, you really got to – this is way different than Fence and Mountain Saskatoon. I'm like, these guys are crazy fast. It's, it's so much faster than regular fencing because you don't have to use any footwork. In standard fencing, you start so many meters away from the person. You have a little bit of time when the guy says ready fence. You got a couple seconds before you can think about what to do. And this one, you got to know right away. You have to know before they say anything, you know, what's the action you're going to take. And if it's the wrong one, you're going to get hit. You're not going to be ready for it. And and the Chinese, the way that they train, they're so good at hearing the, the F sound. Not an F, I guess it would be A for Ale's um, sound come out of their mouth that they just – they hit you before you're even ready to react. So you know, I had a lot of respect for them for that. So it, it took some time for me to get used to that learning curve. And like the um, – one of our coaches always said, you know, different doesn't mean easy. And they're damn right because it is not easy. You know, it's hard to be at that level and to compete at that level and, and – the highest I ever got was I think I was 17th in the world. Um, I don't know where I'm at right now, but when it what ended up happening was the COVID stuff hit. Um, I was slated to go to the Pan Am Games in 2020, just before the Olympics. Um, I was hoping I would have won that again. That was down in Brazil. That got canceled, so I didn't get to go to that. And then the Olympics were kind of up in the air, and then they canceled all that. And then so they took all of our old points in based our position on that. And so when it came down to the wild card slot, I lost uh, in a vote three to two and they sent a Turkish kid um, instead of me to Tokyo for the pair of games, which I think fencing starts in like two days from now, which, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. The guy that they sent, um, I wish I could remember his name right now. He's very, very good fencer, very fast. So you know, I wish him best of luck. So as of now, how it sits is just, um, I got to determine whether or not I'm going to try and stick around for another uh, three years and go to Paris in 2024 because I have a little more experience and I get to fence a little more because the qualification period for um, para fencing is two years instead of one year. Usually everybody ramps up the year before the event. 2019 right is is huge. That's where everybody's trying to get their points together, trying to qualify for the following Olympics in 2020. Well, Paralympics would have been 2018, 2019, and then the first few months of 2020. Well, I, I was unaware of that, so I really didn't start getting into it until the ass end of 2018 when i fenced in japan that was in december so i had missed five or six events prior to that that i didn't fence at so my points were taken on a very like a much smaller amount so i think i had had more time and more experience and just more ability to practice because for a lot of these people like that's the only thing they do they train all the time for this i got a full-time job i got two kids i got a wife i'm in the gym four days a week like it's it's really hard for me to spend eight hours every day just training you know for this which is similar to what i had to do before when i was trying to you know get my a for standard you know men's foil now with that just as a as a side kind of um symptom of what we've gone through the last 18 months i mean obviously there are some people that went through you know loss and and that's absolutely tragic but there's you know there's been a many many other ripple effects of this especially when it comes to you know physical health i think the fitness and nutrition the ability to have that whether it's the mental health stuff with you not being able to travel with you not being able to compete did you feel the pinch of that with with this you know one of your really positive outlets that you found again you know kind of being grounded for a while no not not really and for me it was because i had so much else going on because when i would travel a, a lot of people i think got the wrong idea that like it was like for fun. They weren't vacations. I was there to do one thing, to fence, right? So if I'm going to Japan, 
I'm leaving on a Monday. I'm there on a Tuesday. I'm fencing on a Wednesday. I'm flying home like Thursday or Friday. Like it's just in and out. But every time I did that, it's time away from the kids and it's time I have to make up once I get back to work. So typically I work, you know, uh, four tens. So I work four days in a row, usually Tuesday through Friday. But if I had to make up that time, well, then I might work seven days in a row, right? Or eight days in a row trying to make up that time. The city was very cool about how I did it. I could take off whenever I needed. I just had to make up the time somewhere else. I just had to spread it out. Um, and I didn't want to run through a bunch of vacation time or take off all my comp time. So I was like, okay, I'll just fill in these days um, at, at different times. So it was nice in a way because it let me slow all that down. Because in 2019, it, it was balls to the wall. I was gone like every six weeks. you know. And if I wasn't overseas, well, then I was at like the training camp in Colorado Springs out there doing stuff for like a week. Um, so once that stuff hit, I, everything kind of just went back to normal and I could get back into the grind of, you know, just being with my family, hanging out, uh, with my friends or being in the gym or just working regularly again. Cause I was just always tired, always gone. My kids were always wondering where I was and why I wasn't home. And it's, it's hard to explain when they're, when they're that age, you know, what it is I'm trying to achieve. Cause at the end of the day, it'd be really cool to be like, yo, my dad was in the Olympics in like 2020, you know, that's, that's a cool thing to say. Um, and to have like the outfits and, and medals and stuff and have them hung up. It, it all, it's like a cool story that kind of tells itself. Um, but, you know, you got to ask yourself at the end of the day, like at what expense? And when it comes to time away from the kids, that gets very, it's very hard to deal with over time. You know, and props to all the athletes who really can do it, you know, do this stuff for like 10 years and have children and stuff. That's, that'd be really hard to do. So I miss my kids, miss my wife when I was gone all the time. So it was nice to have a little break. It didn't really wear down on me much. Beautiful. Well, Byron, I want to switch to some closing questions so I can let you get back to your children and your cats and everyone else I've seen in the in the <laughs> screen the last half, uh, hour and a half. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Well, I mean, I can give you a couple books yeah, please. that I really like. If, if you want, okay. Um, so my favorite book that I've probably read the most is going to be The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Fascinating book. <laughs> uh, and, and what I would suggest is is to get the book when you're young. I read it when I was 16, when I was 20, when I was 24, and when I was 30. And each time you read it, you, you think Holden Caulfield is more and more whiny and knows less about the real world. When you're 16, you read it like, this kid's spot on. He knows exactly what he's talking about. This is exactly how the world is. When you're 20, you're like, I don't really know what his deal is about this. I don't know, this really isn't a problem. When you're 24, you're like, get a job. <laughs> you know, so – uh, I, I find the book fascinating for that. Uh, if you like uh, fantasy fiction style stuff, The Stand by Stephen King, I've read that three times. That's a really good book. Um, nonfiction, though, uh, A Problem from Hell by Samantha Power is really good. It's about all the modern day genocides uh, or the genocides of the past like 60 years or so. Um, it's a good book. A Long Way Gone is a fantastic book about the life of a child soldier in Africa. I, I, um, Ishmael has been on the show. I interviewed him yeah. a few years ago. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's a great book. I actually had to put that down. That was a difficult read. Um, and then uh, Dreamland by Sam Kionis is really good. He's been so on that Dreamland too. Is... Oh, really? Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I just start looking into these. Yeah. So, yeah, his his book was great. I just finished I just finished that. Um, and I wish I could remember the book I'm reading now. I think it's just called Violence. Um, it has to do with uh, crime in Boston in the, in the 90s. Uh, or Stop the Violence might be what it's called. It's about gun violence in, in Boston. Um, and I have like the Gulag Archipelago, which I haven't really got around to reading yet, but I will get around to that eventually. Um, and then do you know the book On Killing 
Yep, I've had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman on a couple of times. Oh, well, see, I, I can't even make it any more <laughs> No, I mean, the Stephen King one. Actually, Stephen King's someone I'd love to get on one day. I, I read his book on how to write a book when I was writing my book. That's a mouthful. But um, so I think, I mean, he's got a fascinating story between his writing, his accident, overcoming that. Um, so, you know, maybe one day. But yeah, Ishmael Bay. To this day, still one of the most incredible stories. You talked about um, genocide. I just released one with a, a psychologist who was uh, she survived Auschwitz, and she's written an incredible book, "The Choice and the Gift." Um, so yeah, another another incredible. And as you know, there's so many amazing people out there, and it breaks my heart when the TVs are full of some of these shitbags that we give the microphone to over and over again. But uh, yeah, there's a lot. Fascinating stories out there that get that get missed because yes. for entertainment value. When really learning and knowing your history and understanding where people are coming from will give you a whole different perspective, right? Because I don't really care what Kim Kardashian thinks about anything, but I do care what some of these people who have survived horrific uh, scenes, and like maybe in like Afghanistan or like the caste system in India or something like that. That's that's the real interesting stuff, you know. And I've read a lot of different books from from different. Uh, conflicts and stuff so yeah that's that's interesting stuff beautiful well the same question but what about a movie and or a documentary that you love movie that i love 12 angry men that's a fantastic movie that really illustrates how effective uh, communication can be especially persuasive communication have you ever seen it the old black and white film it takes um, place in one room i don't i don't think i have actually no Okay, hey, you might find it boring. It's just black and white. Henry Fonda's in it, and basically, there's the uh, there's this kid who they're on trial. He's on trial for murder for killing his dad, and everyone's convinced he did it 100. percent So that they're like, okay, let's take a vote. Eleven of them vote that he's guilty. It comes down to Henry Fonda, and he says not guilty. And I'm like, well, why do you think he's not guilty? You saw the information. He's like, I think we should talk about it. And it's just about that conversation. That is the whole length of the movie. It's a fantastic film. Um, documentary. A good documentary series I've seen uh, that comes to mind. Guy caught me off guard with that one. I watch a lot of documentaries and I can't even think of one right now that is uh, that was really good. Um, so I'd have to get back to you on that one because I can't think of anything. No, no yeah, Twelve Minutes, That's a phenomenal film. We actually watched it in communications class in college, and it's a great example of how effective communication can get people to change their minds when you can get really good at making your point. And I've always been a huge fan, uh, especially since I studied politics and undergrad and graduate school of like argumentation, not argumentation of like, you're wrong, I'm right, but here's my idea. And how can I convince you that this is an idea that you should also uh, support? The most important skill at the moment. Like even I just released now, like as we're talking, um, an interview I did with a, a doctor. I've had him on before, bringing him back on discussing the the whole pandemic, the virus itself, the vaccinations, some of these treatments that actually you know aren't helping people, but doing it in a way that people don't get triggered, don't put their walls up, because you know there's some really really important things to to hear. Like for example, whether you like it or not, in the ERs right now, basically ninety something percent of their patients that are either dying or have died are unvaccinated. You know so. I, I ended up having it done, but I was very, very, you know, skeptical at first. And I have pretty solid, you know, medical background between being a paramedic, exercise physiology grad. I mean, you know, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, I'm not an idiot either. And I was just completely confused by it, all the stuff, you know, the, the, the leadership void that we had created just this divisiveness, whether it was the virus, whether it was even some of the, some of the issues, other issues that we've seen. 
But the ability to bring everyone together, settle down everyone's emotions and say, look, here are the facts. Still make your own choice, but here are the facts without any bias, without any political influence, without any clickbait. Um, and I think that's a skill that, that we're absolutely desperate for at the moment. Sure. And honestly, I think that's what makes somebody a really good street officer is being able to do that. Yeah, you don't need to convince anybody of like, you know, hey, see this my way. But it's like, hey, here's the facts of what happened. Here's why this is going to happen the way that it happens, you know, and being able to calm people down and knowing the appropriate vocabulary to use for the people that you're talking to, you know, because if I'm talking to you, for instance, and I say, oh, you know, it's a general colloquialism. Somebody on the street might not have any idea what that word means. So it's not going to be any good to use it. But I'm like, oh, that's that's normal street slang, man. <laughs> right? They're going to understand, oh, that's just how people talk. Right? So it's it's knowing and understanding your audience, really, you know, and being able to, to cater to a vocabulary or a demeanor that they understand to, to get cooperation out of them or information out of them. So and that's, that's a skill that it can be taught, but it's really nice when you kind of have a natural ability to be able to do it. Absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, for you – Again, with the law enforcement perspective, you know, that, that chess mindset that you had, being able to analyze the person in front of you and figure out the best way, you know, sometimes you're going to have to go hands on and use, use, you know, violence basically, but many, many other times, this is what, you know, identifying what's truly upset in someone, what's the root cause, and then being that person that brings their emotions back down again, using your mind rather than, as you said, rather than your hands. Yeah, no, totally. Totally agree. Oh, I, I remembered uh, the documentary, by the way. Um, I think it's called Abducted in Plain Sight. Brilliant. Did you ever see that? I, it's on Netflix. I don't know if I did. Which uh, which case is that one about? Well, you have children, and trust me, you will be yelling at the screen. It's about <laughs> it's about this family in Utah that lets a 40-year-old man sleep with their 12-year-old daughter because he convinces them to let him do it, and then he abducts her twice. <laughs> I want to say, maybe crazy. I did see that. Yeah, yeah I think I saw that, and I think I was screaming at the TV. Because now now you say that, he, oh. yeah, he basically brainwashed the family, didn't he? Yes, yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was awful. <laughs> another one yeah, don't it, don't fuck with cats that, that's another awful yeah. one. <laughs> oh, is it i need okay i haven't watched that one did you watch wild wild country is that the one with um, the I'll, indian guy yes yes yeah, 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 i yeah. started watching it. i didn't finish it but I'll, I'll put that down too yeah i, oh, I got into it but i never finished it so i need to finish that one that was worth watching too yeah yeah it's very good yeah don't fuck with cats is just insane it's and it's have to check that out. Yeah, macabre and entertaining at the same time. You almost feel bad for being entertained, but the story is absolutely crazy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, that is that is also a first responder or no, just anybody? Anybody. I mean, I have, as I said, I've had Ishmael, I've had you know Sam, I've had all these. To me... Any human being that at the core of their being is is goodness, then you know all walks of life. I love it. Hmm. I would recommend. Come on. To, oh, actually, I would talk to my buddy. He's actually a friend of mine. I talked to my buddy Amir Yeruchi. Why? Because he uh, was a refugee from Bosnia from the Bosnian War. And so he could kind of give you some insight on how he went from um, 
he basically came from that country, went to Germany, and then came to America. And now he's a police officer down in Cincinnati. Or an even, another story you might like is – I cannot say this man's name. His last name is Ramadan, but he works for our, my, my department. Um, and his story is absolutely insane. I'll have to email you his stuff because there was a story done about him. But basically he's from Burundi. And he lived for like 15 years in a refugee camp in Africa before he came to America, learned English, and became a police officer. And now it's great because he speaks like five different African languages and translates for us all the time because we have large Somali populations here that speak Karawundi or they speak Somali. And, and, and we don't – we can't communicate effectively with them you know, in, in a way that they're used to or in the, the demeanor that they like. But he comes out and just, you know, just flows, you know. I saw I actually saw him do a field sobriety test for a drunk African dude who was out there and it was incredible to watch because he said everything and the guy was too drunk to even do it, but it was just a it was a cool <laughs> thing. But his story is really cool too. Well that's the thing. I mean the this latest Olympics, I don't know if you've caught any of these. I mean maybe you have with the kind of uh you know passion that you have for more diverse subjects, but one of the tragedies that the most least known things about this Olympics is there was a refugee team. And you know, I'm trying to get one of the team members on on the on the show. Yeah, but I mean, how do we not know that? What a beautiful concept that all these refugees from all these different conflicts that have come to different countries banded together and were sent out to represent refugees, people that fled their country. Um, and you know, so so I think that that element, whether it's an, uh, one of those athletes or whether it's just someone who you know was a refugee from another country or you know like you said ended up being in a camp for years and years these are the the stories again Biebers and kardashians don't care you know these are the stories i want to hear you know yeah yeah so i would think i would think either either one of them would be cool um the with you know like with my with my friend amir he would have, he would have been kind of young because a lot of a lot of my friends that i know that were from bosnia i mean they would have been like five or six back then but they still remember kind of like the growing up process and going through it and i mean me being their friend i didn't i don't want to go too much into like that kind of stuff i'm more concerned with just you know knowing them now you know um so those those would be my my two recommendations for that now if you want somebody who's just just strictly an athlete def i would say garrick meinhardt would have a really cool story because he was the youngest uh i want to say he was the youngest male fencer um to compete in the olympics I think he was like seven, 17 when he went to where were we in 08 beijing uh was, sounds familiar yeah he's top tier like just super nice guy i was um i, I remember i didn't know that he knew who i was and so i was kind of like starstruck by him because i saw him walking at the snack and like, oh my god there's Garrett. and he was like walking by me, he's like hey byron i was like oh my god he knows who i am <laughs> you're fanboying <laughs> so, yeah no, super nice super down to earth just really friendly guy so yeah th- those those would be my three recommendations really beautiful all right well then the last question before we make sure where people can find you if they want to reach out what do you do to decompress music always music definitely i, I Love playing music. Played for a long time. Played in some bands and stuff like that. Um, I was in a popular band from like 2001 to 2006 here in uh, in the Dayton area. Um, played guitar for you know, like I said, 20 years. Um, doing that or just going to the gym. It used to be I'd go run um, <laughs> when running was feasible, but that, that's what I would say. Music or the gym. I don't know. Britt, what, what do you think I do to decompress? Ask my wife. She'd be able to tell you. She says watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. I think I mean they're all they're all powerful, you know, outlets. Though and I think again, it, it it really does seem very clear that that drive and that passion and hunger that you had for all these different projects before must have been one of the 
the elements that allowed you to to grow mentally from this injury rather than be crushed by it yeah yeah i would say so <laughs> all right well then people listening i'm sure there's there's people that maybe they're amputees themselves there's people that maybe just trying to overcome you know any limitation um to enter in you know, law enforcement fire um or maybe just want to you know inspired by a story on the fencing side where are the best places for people to find you online do you have any social media or any any uh any ways people can communicate with you i just have instagram i don't i stopped using facebook like 10 years ago <laughs> um but yeah just just my instagram account you can find me on there uh do you just want my name yeah yeah just, what, my, what's your handle name. okay it's chester and then underscore underscore together and then Rockwell, which is just a nickname I got from high school. Beautiful. And and it's private, so you know if people want to like see it or whatever, best just message me first because I'm uber paranoid about people getting on there and trying to figure out what department I work for and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I think law enforcement of all the groups in law enforcement, obviously, you know, special operations, they're uh, yeah, they have to be very careful and use pseudonyms and all that stuff, and it's totally understandable. Well, Byron, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much for telling your story. Um, you know, you are inspiring for many, many reasons. Not like, oh, there's this cop that, you know, is missing a leg. That's, you know, one small part. But your whole journey, you know, the high-level fencing and, you know, returning to that and, um, you know, the, the the kind of mindset that you had through all this. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you to your family, too, for allowing me to steal you for an hour and a half. But uh, I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Oh, yeah, man. No problem. Don't mention that. If you have any other questions, concerns, or anything like that, man, you know, just shoot them up my way. And just so you know, I'm just sending you a link to that's the Ramadan guy that I mentioned. So you can read that when you get some free time. Because, like I said, his story is absolutely fascinating. I met him actually when I was out training at the academy. Um, he, he used to work for the city, and I would see him all the time. And everybody's like, they was like, I really like this kid, you know. And they finally said, hey, he's coming through an academy. I like, man, I really hope he makes it. Everybody was rooting for him. And, Came through no problem. So he, because he was really fit, he was a soccer coach. So I didn't think he'd have a problem doing the run or anything like that. So everybody's really excited to see him come through.